Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. This week, the March of the Awesome Scandinavian Directors continues. Lucky all of you, lucky us. It is the number two in a series of two, and honestly, uh, the movies back-to-back would be a fine double feature for you to take in, so think about that. My co-host on this week's episode is Eskil Folkt, whose new movie, The Innocence, is in theaters and on streaming services right now. There is a coming-of-age thread that runs through a lot of folks' work, so it's appropriate that the first character he felt seen by is Anthony Michael Hall's Brian Johnson in The Breakfast Club. And then, moving along down the line, later we will talk about a character who came of age a little bit later in their life on screen, and that is Julie in Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir Films, Part 1 and Part 2. Honor Swinton Byrne is the star of that. And if you're if you're going to be Tilda Swinton's daughter, you better be able to hold it down on screen. And guess what? Honor does that. Uh, then before I go, I'll have one quick thing to say about the movie Men. The new A24, you know, existentially terrify you movie from writer and director Alex Garland. But for right now, let's get on with the show. I am joined by... All, another all-hits-no-skips person here on the Feeling Scene podcast. As a screenwriter, you might know him from his work with the sort of famous, sort of extremely accomplished uh, Joachim Trier. You might know uh, the incredible, definitive coming-of-age sci-fi film, Thelma, one of my favorite movies ever. You might know him from the extremely buzzed-about, extremely lauded the worst person in the world from last year. He is also a director, which you might have seen his film Blind, and I am hoping you get ready for the extremely unnerving, written and directed by Eskil Vogt, The Innocence Eskil. Is that a fine introduction for you, or what else can we tell the people to get them set up about the work that you bring to the table today? That's a wonderful introduction. I'm glad you're a Thelma fan. Oh my God. It is, that movie is so, it is one of the great like queer genre films. It's a rare queer superhero origin story is what it is. That it's so beautiful. That performance by Eileen Harbo is so moving. It is, it's a wonderful film. Yeah, big fan. Cool. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you, honestly. And I feel like there is your, your new movie, The Innocence. I feel like there's a bit of a, There's a bit of an invisible string that I feel like connects the two of these movies. Innocence feels like a fascinating successor to Thelma in sort of the like the order of operations of you as a creative. And I wanted to hear from you about, you know, we'll get we will get to the conceit of the podcast, certainly. But I wanted to start out by talking about the current work and talking about the the youth track, the coming of age track and the imbuing the rawness of that time in our lives with a supernatural essence that isn't hit you over the head like sort of Doctor Strange and the madness of the multiverse big, but is something that just sort of like permeates the fabric of the screen and you sort of feel it in every little pixel and it, it kind of overwhelms you. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's interesting how coming of age can just now become like every movie is coming of age (laughs) even if it's like yeah because uh, i mean uh you're right my my innocence is about childhood it's kind of coming of age and thelma it's more about like uh growing up and from your teens to your 20s in a way and that's coming of age and worst person in the world is about a woman turning 30 and it's still coming of age and i i guess i guess everyone is still just Working on that, we, we, we're going to come of age <laughs> once, you know. We just, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm getting close, uh, but it, it is uh, uh, innocence is linked to Telma, mm-hmm. uh, and also in a very practical way. When we Joachim and I, when we were brainstorming, we want to do something more genre. We want to use that kind of visual, visceral movie language, mm-hmm. and we were exploring different ideas. I I came up with the idea that was sort of the idea of the innocence mm-hmm. it's uh what if a group of kids were playing together and while they were doing that something magical and inexplicable happened mm-hmm. and they would just go along with it like it was not the big deal right. and then they would go home and sit down at dinner table and that magic wouldn't be there anymore mm-hmm. 
And uh, you would think that was their imagination. And I, I said to Joachim, what if that magic was real? If that magic of childhood really existed? Mm -hmm. And that was uh, just one of the ideas that we were presenting to each other. And that's how we work with throw ideas. Uh, and if they don't stick on the other person, they just fall to the ground and we move mm -hmm. on. But that, And Joachim wasn't the father at the time. Maybe that was the... I was and he wasn't. Uh -huh. So maybe... That's why that that idea kept coming back to me. So at one point I, I felt, yeah, this is something I could work with. And that magic of childhood became, of course, they have to have some powers. And if kids have powers, mm -hmm. something's bad is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. you know, kids shouldn't have powers. And, uh, and of course, that became more of a moral tale of how you come of age morally where you you i mean you you're born with your father and mother's values you're like yeah uh, you that's your first set of, of 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 morals it's like your mom says don't do that father says say always say thank you and, and you and and you can't go through life obviously you can't come of age if that's uh, yeah. <laughs> if you just uh as a uh, when you're 30, you can't say, I can't do that because mom says I can't. Right. You, you, know, you, you lost you, at that. At one point, you have it's to. It's on you. Yeah. It's on you now, and you have to uh, find your own set of values. And I think one of the reasons why there's so many stories about kids doing wrong, the wrong thing or being cruel to other kids or animals or is that you need to do some of the stuff mm -hmm. your mom told you not to do mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then feel, it, does it feel wrong? Mm -hmm. Do I feel guilty? And, and that became part of my story and the coming of age of my story. I feel like you, you have like a coming of age trilogy now that is the innocence into <laughs> Thelma, into the worst person in the world, the Eskil yes. folk coming and of age trilogy. Coming of age story. And next <laughs> it will be about the 70 year old man still still struggling <laughs> to come of age. <laughs> do you now, do you, do you find that you have yet stopped coming of age or did fatherhood inject a new coming of age into your life because you had to cross that threshold and sort of attempt mastery at this very important discipline in your life it's when you become a father instead of uh, you you don't become a master just learn that you are completely uh, a failure <laughs> as, a, as a person you know it's uh, you, you're confronted with your shortcomings every day and you can't hide from them that does seem like the, the friends who I have who are parents, it, like there's the, the mm. joy in, and yes there's also a unifying experience of becoming aware of all of any failure you might have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you 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 can't you can't hide them. You know they're they're there. And and uh, I mean we're joking about never coming of age, but I find one of the big uh, lies or myths about uh, life is that when you are a kid, you think that the adults have it all figured yeah. out, and when you are an adolescent, you think, oh, uh, soon I'll I'll pass that threshold. Yeah. And I'll be fine. Uh, you know, I won't be this chaotic mess anymore. I remember thinking when I was in middle school, it was 24. It was 24 years yeah. old. <laughs> was that like, oh, my God, that's like so adult. Because I think that's when that's yeah. like around the age probably my teachers were like they were out of school. Yeah. They had done internships. They were now full time teachers. They were probably 24, 25. So that was to me like that's when it was all figured out. But you don't have it figured out. You, 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 you're still you're as lost at 45 as you were at 25 as you were at five you know? <laughs> <laughs> so so, uh, so that's the that's the thing you learn is that you just now you just have to cope with that mm -hmm. you don't have to deal with uncertainty and uh insecurities and whatever i mean there's some great stuff about getting older and not caring that much what other people mm -hmm. think <laughs> <laughs> which is just like oh that's a good right, thing yeah. you know uh yeah but you're still learning mm -hmm. I mean, speaking of coming of age, this is, I think, a very appropriate track to get onto to get into the central question of the podcast, which is the characters that you have brought as points of identification for you in film and very much coming of age stories. In, I mean, in one of them, a, a, a generational text um, and then another, a new film, a, a tender and gorgeous drama. Um, and who are the characters that you have brought for us to discuss today? Well, uh, I brought uh, The Breakfast Club. Mm. And uh, and uh, since I had to 
uh, choose a character. Of course, it's Anthony Michael Holt's character. The, <laughs> I believe it's Brian Johnson. Yeah, and the, I mean, in some of the John Hughes movies, I, I rewatched Sixteen Candles with my kids. He's just his character name in the, in the credits is called the Geek or the Nerd. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of violent because I think even <laughs> Sixteen Candles, his character has a name. Mm-hmm. I mean, they refer to him uh, as Paul, or I can't remember, but. But in the credits, he's the geek. <laughs> yeah. Now, that. are they are yeah. they all listed without names? Where they're like they're the geek, the jock, the not just him. Just, just him. him. He's just yeah. the geek. Yeah. Oh, brutal. No, I, I think I think like uh, Joan Cusack is the geeky girl or something <laughs> like that. It, it, uh, it, it's not it's not John Hughes' best movie. I was kind of dis- disappointed revisiting Sixteen Candles. It's not. It hasn't aged as well as The Breakfast Club has. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, I think, but. Uh, but yeah, I guess Anthony Michael Holt's character is still kind of the geek, the nerd in Breakfast Club. Yeah. But, uh, but what I love about the Breakfast Club, and that's why I chose it, mm-hmm. is that, I mean, I, I always, I, I love movies since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But, but for me, it was more about an escape mm-hmm. than like uh, a reflection of my life, mm-hmm. you know. I and And even the Breakfast Club was... I saw it. I was probably eleven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably something same. like that. And and I, I yeah, and I saw it, and I thought, oh, I wish I had these problems. <laughs> I, I, that looks so cool to have these complicated issues and to navigate uh-huh. that. You know, I always wanted to be people in movies more than I felt they saw me. Uh-huh. But I feel, but I felt it was something really fresh about the breakfast club for me that they really that was a movie that took the young uh characters so seriously i mean their their dilemmas their emotions their feelings the frustrations with the parents it was they never make fun of it they take it very seriously and it's uh it's a real well-written text about being young, you know, and they all get their moment of explaining different pressures they're under and how they're, and they, and it feels very real. Mm-hmm. So that that's maybe, I mean, I, I joke sometimes that Breakfast Club was my gateway drug to Bergman. Yeah, that, that's you know, tremendous. Uh, <laughs> Them all sitting around in the library is just is just the seventh seal and talking to death over and a game of chess. To the, yeah, yeah. Instead of a uh, uh, game of chess, it's like this. Uh, yeah, they have detention and uh, death is this principle, you know, coming in with uh, with his uh, bad wardrobe. <laughs> but it's such a honest piece of work, you mm-hmm. know. I feel like it, it really tries to express the different characters. Um, it's real. It, it, it much about how. Uh, the old generation doesn't, they don't understand what the kids are going mm-hmm. through. Is this the first time or the last time we do this? Last. Well, get in there and use the time to your advantage. Well, we're not supposed to study. We just have to sit there and do nothing. Well, mister, you figure out a way to study. Yeah. Well, go! And I feel it's like John Hughes has a cameo as... Uh, Anthony Michael Hall's father. Right, yeah, yeah. I think, get, pick, pick, picking, picking him up. Him up uh, and, uh, and you just see these people and you feel, oh, they they don't know who their children mm-hmm. are. And uh, that's something I, I even explore in my movie, The Innocence. I just I know, I was gonna, that's exactly what I was going to ask about was how, because it, it seems like you you give that gravity to that age of that that age of experience and i wanted to know when that when you started feeling like that was a priority for you and even even though she's she's like about 30 in worst person in the world there's that whole conversation that she has with axel at like near the end where he talks about how at a certain point he just stopped trying and he goes back to the comfort movies and the comfort stories and granted he's in a very critical situation in his life but i wanted to talk to you about when that became something that was sort of very pressing for you to to factor into your own creative work to treat the lives of the young like something so serious and like something that isn't just sort of like reckless without consideration or isn't flippant and superficial but to really like with with innocence and with Thelma and then and then through into a later age stage still with worst person in the world particularly with with young women to really take seriously the interiority of that struggle of being young I just feel that's what writers and filmmakers do I mean, it it would be so. I, I couldn't imagine mm-hmm. 
making a movie and not be serious about my characters and their interior lives or whatever. So it's just, uh, but I see some people are, do kind of do the shortcuts to get to some other good stuff mm-hmm. because that what, that, that's what they're more interested yeah. in. And But I, I always land on the side of the characters, even if I think, oh, I'm making a more horror kind of film, I still get back into the family drama mm-hmm. or the kids and how they're feeling it. And I just feel the situations and the story just becomes more alive if you care about the people, if you believe that they are real people. Mm-hmm. They're not real people. Obviously, they're fictional, but <laughs> they, that, that just that, that they feel complex and they have their idiosyncrasies and their contradictions mm-hmm. and their aspirations and they are aware that they're not living up to these aspirations mm-hmm. and that all that ambivalence makes a believable character an interesting character even if it's not a action hero that knows what to do at every right. moment you know so, so it's always important to me to just have access to a character's thoughts and feelings. Mm-hmm. That's what's make uh, a character interesting to me. And you have the US screenwriting tip of action is character. Uh, it's what a character do that defines a character. Okay. And uh, and I think sometimes not, you know, sometimes characters <laughs> don't act or they just sit there yeah. or they don't know. And, and, and the reasons why that really does feel like the split between American yeah. and European cinema, what you're describing right now. Incredible. Maybe, That's incredible. Yeah. No, I love hearing about this <laughs> stuff. And what I feel is my job then is to find uh, a way to make the character's interior accessible, mm-hmm. you know, so that people can understand why they're not acting or understand why they are ambivalent mm-hmm. and and um, and feel what the character is feeling and not just observing this exemplary uh, dynamic character who knows what to do in every situation mm-hmm. and you're just in in awe admiration but you're not identifying mm-hmm. in that way or or understanding or learning so it's always been important to me i just feel it's uh, it's obvious you mm-hmm. know for me that it has to be like that it's not a choice I, I try to work against it, you know. I still end up <laughs> with, with these drama situations. Yeah. I I was recently reading about the original release of RoboCop, and Paul Verhoeven talked about how if this were, he's like, if RoboCop was a European movie, and um, Murphy learned the reality of what he was, he would like ponder like his relationship with like a god creator and have like an existential wandering about like who he would become and then if it was an american movie obviously it would be about revenge (laughs) and how there was how inherently there is a um a sort of fascination with looking back and the obsession with revenge and the obsession with making good versus a fascination with looking forward in the consideration of what am i now and who am i now and who will i become and I thought that was a very interesting split I'd never considered, that sort of anchoring anchoring action and violent reaction in a in an attachment to the previous memory in the past, as opposed to a consideration, a a, a thoughtfulness of what next. That's so interesting. And I, I, when you described that, it felt like the, the uh, Robocop, European Robocop person is Blade Runner. But uh, like, that's uh, a really it feels good like that, that's uh, that feels like a mixture of that European sensibility mm-hmm. with the American genre mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sci-fi style. So yeah, that, that, it's so interesting. Wow, European Robocop is Blade Runner. I love that. <laughs> this is thought leadership on the Feeling Scene podcast, you guys. We are having new thoughts about cinema that is forty years old. Um, I don't think anyone else have had that take on Feeling Scene before. No, right? that's no, the first time. It's yeah. the first time here, and that's the first time I've heard it. So it's the first time in history for me. Um, I, I loved what you were saying about like connecting with with Brian Johnson in the Breakfast Club, and and the idea of like romanticizing um what they're dealing with and and how they're dealing with it and i wondered was that because when when you were around that age were you were was that kind of complicated very interesting to you and it wasn't it, it felt more complicated than your own life or it felt simpler than what you were experiencing and so you were like if only this is all i had to worry about like where where what side of the split were you on with that 
I think I wasn't aware of how complicated things were, mm. you know, in a way. I, 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 I thought I had this kind of an interesting life. <laughs> so I like to project myself into movies and watch uh, stuff that happened like on another side of the world yeah. and, and uh, watch Hollywood movies and, and just uh, feel that that was so much more interesting than what I was uh, living. And uh, but I, I think I identify with that character also because when I was in school, elementary school, like a little bit, probably time I, I saw uh, Breakfast Club, I, I was kind of an outsider mm -hmm. there. I had a few friends, but we were obviously like we were into computers and video games and we were not the coolest kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then... Uh, but uh, so so I, I I think I kind of identified with like being good in school and 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 having some sort of confidence from that, right. but thinking that was also not that important, you know. So you kind of uh, navigating all those things, and 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 then in uh, in high school, I I was in this very nerdy class mm -hmm. so we i had uh, like a blast we, we, like, <laughs> we okay. just uh, uh yeah and then it was when uh, i was a little bit older i kind of became a little bit outsider because i was not in a school that hasn't that many uh, like-minded people so so it, uh, but i was kind of um always reading watching movies was coolness and, something you were uh, self-conscious about or were you like eh, coolness doesn't matter to me but you were just aware of it I was aware of it, and I think I, at one, I probably felt like there was something interesting happening over <laughs> yeah. there that I wasn't part yeah. of. But I was very happy with what I was doing. Okay, yeah, you know, it Good. wasn't like yeah, so it wasn't. Uh, That's big, I'm glad. I, it wasn't suffering, <laughs> uh, but uh, but I, I feel I, I identify probably with that character for that reason. Mm -hmm. What are you babbling about? Well, what I'd said was, I'm in a math club. Uh, the Latin club and the physics club. Physics club. Do you belong to the physics club? That's an academic club. So? So academic clubs aren't the same as other kinds of clubs. Ah, but the dorks like him, they are. Uh, and also, I, I don't know if it's still like that. There's this, so these kind of... Do, is it true to... I mean, you've grown up in... Uh, in the U.S., these kind of uh, archetypes of the jock and the nerd and the princess and the yeah. and the rebel—is <laughs> it still yeah. like that, or was it like that? They, yeah. they, I found that the the caste system in my high school was fortunately really skewed toward favoring the arts. When I was going through, when I was in my four-year high school, our our choir was was super well regarded. Our theater department was booming. Those were the kids. The stars in those departments were also part of the student government, and they were very popular. And so I was very glad that that was how kind of the priorities organized socially in my high school. But it it did still compartmentalize very much down into the you know the jocks and the nerd academics, and then as as Mean Girls lays out the sexually active band geeks and the theater <laughs> kids. It did have those delineations. And I was kind of a rover. I could, like, I was good at bouncing between sort of everybody. And it it was, it was in a way, bouncing around to those kind of separate pods when I did. There wasn't, um, there wasn't, like, a factionalized friction between them. I feel really grateful for that. At least not in a way that was apparent to me. Um, but it, it certainly was, like, there were the silos in that way. Is that not the, is that not familiar to the sort of hierarchy as you experienced it when you were growing up? What's your prototypical Norwegian high school experience? Well, it's kind of similar. It was kind of similar, but it wasn't that, I mean, but you, you have the sports people, yeah. uh, of course, but it's, uh, and I guess it's the same, like in Breakfast Club, that the sports people, the jocks have sort of uh, access to the, okay. like the cool people, kind of an overlap. Yeah there that but it's uh it's really different mm -hmm. i guess the same in the u.s from like inner city schools mm -hmm. to the one not in more like in the in the countryside yeah, urban versus like suburban the, uh, kind of split. urban versus suburban thing so i i was in a kind of <laughs> mid like almost urban okay like outskirts of of oslo and there it was it was a mixture and i i can recognize those kind of 
but it wasn't like we don't have these things like prom and homecoming <laughs> oh, and okay. you know, uh, so, so those things are just very exotic when I see it in, in, in movies, you know, that's, uh, wow, they really do that. Yeah. They vote for like the homecoming. Yeah, we have the homecoming court and, come out yeah. on the football field during the big homecoming game. And everybody gets the crowns and the sashes. It's really happening. Uh, it's really happening. Yeah. So that, that's... Uh, that that wasn't part of my my youth, but I, I still I mean I, I'm so in awe of how uh, America can talk about its own like iconographic yeah. moments mm-hmm. and and communicate to the world, and it becomes uh, like a reference point for everyone. <laughs> so everyone has seen these movies, mm-hmm. and when I see the names of these uh, streets uh, in movies, yep. I've heard them in dialogue. I I know. I, I look at some chain. I don't know what it is. It's called Applebee's or whatever. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Applebee's. But I, I, I've seen the logo. I've heard it in in sitcoms. It now, yeah. American culture is just. Yeah. I am so glad that the iconography of Applebee's has pervaded <laughs> into the international consciousness. <laughs> our our all day eating establishment with uh, reasonably priced apps and drinks um, has well, made it, it around yeah. the world. <laughs> <laughs> One of our great exports: the idea of Applebee's. We are going to take a quick break, but don't worry, we will be right back with Eskil Vogt. Hi, my name is Graham Clark, and I'm one half of the podcast Stop Podcasting Yourself, a show that we've recorded for many, many years. And uh, at the moment, instead of being in person, we're recording remotely. And uh, you wouldn't even notice. You don't even notice the lag. That's right, Graham. And uh, the great thing about uh, this. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. And, okay, go ahead. And you can listen to us uh, every week on MaximumFun.org. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Your podcasts. Did your neighbor back into your car? Bring that case to Judge Judy. Think the mailman might be the real father? Give that one to Judge Mathis. But does your mom want you to flush her ashes down the toilet at Disney World when she passes away? Now that's my jurisdiction. Welcome to the court of Judge John Hodgman, where the people are real, the disputes are real, and the stakes are often unusual. If I got arrested for dumping your ashes in the Jungle Cruise, it would be an honor. I don't want to be part of somebody getting a super yacht. I don't know at what point you want to go into this, but we've had a worm bin before. Available free right now at MaximumFun.org. Judge John Hodgman, the court of last resort when your wife won't stop pretending to be a cat and knocking the clean laundry over. Welcome back to Feeling Seen. My co-host is Eskil Vogt. His new movie, The Innocence, asks the question, what if kids had superpowers? And the resulting film is a true thriller. Let's get back to our conversation. I read an interview that I think you did around Blind when that movie was coming out, and you talked about that movie having suspense elements and wanting to lean more into that, but saying like something in more like the Hitchcockian vein and how it how it worked with suspense, but saying that you didn't think you could make a pure thriller at the time. You were like, I don't think I have that in me. And having watched The Innocence, I think you are deeply wrong about that. And <laughs> I was, this movie, I was just coming out of my skin the entire time. And it's not, guys, because this movie has, like, there's anvils falling out of the sky and people are stabbing each other left and right. Not all the time. Um, But there's such a sense of dread that eclipses every single second of this movie. And while Americans are very um, brash and, and at times vulgar about violence in our movies, there are things that international cinema dares to do that we kind of are like oh no 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 you, you can't do that like that's a little bit that's a little bit far in the innocence i was like i know i'm not watching an american film because there is a there is a tangibleness and an understatedness to this horrifying violence 
that we would just hit the gas and light a house on fire instead. And there's something a bit more safe and a distance to it when the house catches fire because it's so big and overwhelming. But just a small, intimate act of violence with, you know, very little cinematic showiness around it to to highlight it. And I wanted to talk about the use of violence in in your movie and how like the application of that in a really steady and measured way and how you sort of think about deploying violence in in your films. Well, well, that's a very interesting subject, I think, because, I mean, I I was very conscious about exactly what you're talking about. And leads back to my experience with movies, I can see like an extreme act of violence, Mm. you know, someone shooting someone in the head with a shotgun and I feel nothing. Right. Because uh, how can I, I relate to that? Yeah, uh, it's uh, I can't. I have no memories of any physical pain I've experienced that I can project into that moment. Yeah. So it becomes more like a splatter, fun mm-hmm. moment, totally. or like just a disgusting. Uh, I don't want to see this moment, <laughs> yeah. but it's not something I that uh, affects me. Yeah, yeah. But I can see someone uh, having a hammer and hitting someone's finger. And I'll feel it in my whole body. I, I will just, just I, I know that pain. I'm familiar with that pain. Uh-huh. I, I just, it just uh, affects me completely. It's like when you watch someone get a paper cut, and you're like, oh, you just feel your whole body tingle. It's much, much more impactful than than the most extravagant violence, uh-huh. which is weird. So, so I, I was thinking about that in my movie and that goes also for like the uh the effects the vfx yeah. in the movie there are quite a few of them but they're very subtle mm-hmm. in a way hopefully and uh, and also the violence trying to keep it on that level mm-hmm. where you feel you feel it mm-hmm. in your own body because it's not that extravagant but it's it's violent sometimes but compared to a normal scary movie mm-hmm. The violence is is almost non-existent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? but it's but people are very very affected by it. Uh, yes. So so that's that's uh, uh, even like a splinter mm-hmm. in the thigh mm-hmm. that happens in my movie. Oh uh, God! I heard a friend of mine uh, watched a movie in a regular theater and he thought his friend had fallen asleep, mm-hmm. but he had fainted <laughs> from 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 a, from a split a grown man. Uh, from seeing a splinter. He's really underselling splinter, a, you yeah. guys. This is a chunk of wood the size of my pinky in a child's <laughs> body that is sticking partially out. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the thigh, in the flesh of the thigh. Come on here, Jordan. Don't be, uh, <laughs> Don't be a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I know we're approaching the end, but I you you presented a second character too, and and in the track of coming of age, I wanted to make sure that we got to this because I feel like we're sort of traveling on an age arc here. And you mentioned also the character of Julie from the Souvenir films, Part One and Two, by writer and director Joanna Hogg. Uh, the story of a young woman film student. It's her journey to becoming a filmmaker, but the predominant story in Part One is her relationship uh, with a. Uh, a very, I believe the summary of the films is a very complicated man, and that is uh, not selling you on the details. <laughs> and then the second part of it is is her journey making a film, processing the life she shared with this person, and how that ended. And I, I'm a sucker for a movie about people making movies. I'm a sucker for a, at least industry adjacent kind of story. And what we have here, too, is another coming-of-age story. And and like so many of you have written, a coming-of-age story about a young woman. And I wanted to hear about what about Julie speaks to you as somebody who, this is coming, a, a era, this is iterations after The Breakfast Club and the age of Brian Johnson and that. And now we're at a young person trying to become a filmmaker, struggling with the interpersonal relationships in their life. Where Where are you in Julie? Or where aren't you? Could be pretty comprehensive. When I thought about this podcast and characters that made me feel seen. I was thinking like I was digging in that, like going up and the first time and then suddenly popped up the last time I really felt seen in the movie mm-hmm. was when I watched the souvenir part two mm-hmm. that just came out in a way. Mm-hmm. And I never seen anything capture that feeling of being a film student, of being in film school, it's such yeah. a particular experience. It's such a weird thing uh-huh. if you haven't done it. Maybe probably like every art school has some of the same thing that you are 
you're all there working together. And same time, you're all competitors right, in a way. Yeah. So you're helping each other and supporting each other. But at the same time, you look over, oh, she seems so self-assured and she knows what she's doing. I don't know. And you, <laughs> yeah. you, feel, you feel all these things. Uh, and, and I feel it just perfectly captures that. Mm-hmm. And it has so much to say about that. And I had this, I, I went to film school in Paris mm-hmm. and I went back there uh, like a week after I saw the souvenir part two mm-hmm. to present my movie at the film school oh, and I hadn't so been there since the movie came out. And I suddenly I was walking through these places that hadn't really changed, but it's, it's, but it's been over 10 years wow. since I you know, came. Yeah. I was, uh, had been there and I saw some familiar faces mm-hmm. uh, working there. And I saw that yeah, it was screening in a screening room where we had done a lot of stuff at film school and it just, I was just completely knocked out mm-hmm. uh, about that that two parts combination <laughs> of the souvenir part two, and then going back to film school. It was just incredible because I really, I really identified with Julie in that lostness yeah. of being ambitious about wanting to make movies and 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 what you want to make it about, and you, you people don't getting it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's hard because. In the beginning of the souvenir, she wants to make socially conscious movies. Yeah, about like the men on the docks. The yeah, men on the docks. And she's obviously like... Uh, she's posh. She's posh, you know, like really posh. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's uh, like the British posh. You yeah, know? like and, her, her uh, professor, I think, even makes that comment at one point. He's like, well, you know... It's quite irregular, really, to be coming and talking about project and equipment when you haven't even thought about the budget. But and I don't suppose you really have to think about budget in Knightsbridge, do you? Like, and she just, <clears throat> like, really, like, lays her low. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she keeps asking her mother, you know, uh, about getting more money to pay for stuff. Yeah. And, and, and you just feel like she's conflicted about that. And I, I mean, I'm not from that kind of background. Sure. But of course, I'm, I'm like, in a global scale, I'm privileged. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I, I uh, so I, I identify with, uh, with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also... When she meets this complicated man mm-hmm. uh, that Tom Burke uh, plays, and he says, "You know, uh, wh- why do you want to make? Why don't you make a story about people like us? You know, mm-hmm. no, I want to make about real people. Aren't we real people? Mm-hmm. Why are they more real than me? They're not more real than you. Am I more real than you? No." I think we're all equal in that. I think we're all as real as each other. There's no competition. It doesn't matter that they're not real people. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to make a documentary. I'm, you know, I'm making Now, a are you sure? Yes, I am. I'm making a feature film. You're not trying to document some received idea of life up there on the docks, the daily grind. And he challenges her in all that. And uh, at and and, and the same time, I, I remember my first movie that I wrote with Joachim Trier called Reprise. Uh-huh. And there's a very, one, one of the dilemmas is that one character wants to be a writer uh-huh. and he feels he has experienced nothing. Right, you know? yeah. At the same time, his uh, his best friend uh, has been, had a psychotic incident mm-hmm. and been committed. And he came comes out and it's very complicated. But he doesn't. The character doesn't understand that this is real life experience yeah. right there. Yeah. You know, but you just don't you don't understand it because you're going through it. You just feel no. My my parents uh, uh, are like they're they're middle class, so I'm middle class. Yeah. I, I don't have like real suffering. I don't have a story, but there there are real stories. There are suffering around, and he doesn't get mm-hmm. it during that movie. Uh, and I feel that's what happened to to me in a way because I had like a lot of of people around me having issues mm-hmm. and suicides and, and all that. And, 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 and so you are going through a lot, right, yeah. you know, you, 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 you are uh, living and, and uh, you experience loss and you need to find a way to, to 
make that part of your art mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and and express that and i feel uh the souvenir part one and two is such a beautiful expression of that and and, and i really identify with jewel and i feel that the, the joanna hogg has some really interesting perspectives on art mm-hmm. at the same time she has a sense of humor yeah. about it and she she makes fun of her character but in a caring way mm-hmm. and she really respects her and she she has that great character that uh, Richard. Uh, I was going to ask plays, you about like, the Richard uh, Iote yeah. character. <laughs> yeah. She, Joanna Hogg went to the National Film and Television School in London, mm. which is the same school that Joachim went to some years later. Gotcha. And I was hanging around there a lot, uh, helping him with some short films. So I, I know that place. Mm-hmm. And I know that Julian Temple was probably the basis for that character it, that okay. he that he he did some musicals and he was happening at the time that probably she didn't feel that she had any direction i'm just speculating here <laughs> i don't know joanna hogg at all but uh, but the fact that when they meet in the street and he says how's your memorial finished no edits it's done so waiting to graduate so we'll see did you avoid the temptation to be obvious i think so that's all you can hope for, isn't it? Did you resist the temptation of being obvious? Well, you can't do anything more, can you? Yeah. And I think that's such a... I mean, he didn't bother to see the movie, I think. He just, <laughs> yeah, uh, he just, uh, so. but, but he's kind of a superficial but uh, character, but he... That's so true. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what you, that's what you have to do as an artist. You just have to try not to be obvious you, know, you have to try to express yourself and not do it in that obvious way and that's all you can do what is what a kind of perfect slice of time it seems like to have experienced like the souvenir part two specifically like out of film school for haven't gone back to it for about 10 years you've had very impressive success since that time and then this movie comes along that feels so resonant in this character you're watching was it in a way that did you feel like you had distance from the acuteness of that feeling and sensation of being there? And so it was like looking back in a sort of scrapbook sense, or did it still feel immediate to you? That sense of sort of uh, lostness in the context of like finding your filmmaking voice and what was important to you? Was it a like a remembrance and oh, look at that? Or was it like, a, oh, man, my heart still I feel the flutter even now of that sensation? that that's a very good question and i think what surprised me was that it still felt like that wow. that it didn't just feel like looking back mm-hmm. it's uh and, and when i say 10 years it's just because i won't admit that it's probably closer to 15. <laughs> uh, i still feel like i'm in film school okay. uh, and uh and and so i i'm just i, I identify Every time I do a talk at a film school mm-hmm. or talk to film students, I identify with them. Mm-hmm. And I, I notice that they look at me like someone who's been in the business a long time and they think I have all the answers mm-hmm. or whatever. And of course I mm-hmm. don't. And I feel like them. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and that, uh, the, uh, and Jonah Hogg's movie reminded me that, okay, there's some aspects of that experience that I feel lucky I'm not part of anymore because it's a very weird time to be locked in with these ambitious people in the film school and all that kind of competition that goes on, even though you don't want to admit it and whatever. (laughs) I'm glad to not be in the midst of that. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a memory, but, but that person I was and what I wanted to do. And I mean, it's not that far removed for me. I, I still feel that. That is fascinating. I'm, I'm really, I'm really grateful for you sharing that bit about like feeling the immediacy still of those of that sort of wandering feeling, that sensation of, of being in film school and, and sort of grasping at what the way is. And I wanted to ask you about the conversation with Axel in Worst Person in the World when he talks about retreating into his favorites for comfort and, and not investigating new possibility and and literature and art because he just wants to go he wants to retreat into the things that make him feel good and I wanted to hear about that tension between going back to favorites in your life as a creative versus the process of continuing to discover when I think it is our natural tendency as anybody as we get older is to go back to our greatest hits you know you know who you are and you're getting to know who you are all the time but you want to be curious but you want to be set in yourself like I wanted to hear about that uh it it goes in waves luckily because i don't want i mean i 
it would be sad if I just sat around watching Breakfast Club all day. But sometimes you just feel like that, like the comfort food, like the like dog day afternoon in in the but you mentioned in in the worst person in the mm-hmm. world or or like those seventies cinema. Mm-hmm. I go back there. And you, you know it's good. Yeah, you know it's uh, good. There's no, it, it's good on every level. It, it's like the mixture of the European and the US yeah. thing that <laughs> happened at that time. It's just perfect, you know. And so you can just go there and be happy, mm-hmm. and you know you won't be disappointed. But sometimes you just feel no. I need to. I mean. I know I want to know what's happening. Yeah. I, I want to see new stuff. I want I want to I want to be challenged. I want to be bored. I want to see something that I've never seen before. Yeah. And and luckily I still have that when it comes to movies. Good. I really I watch a lot of new stuff and I I love that mm-hmm. and I I watch all genres. I watch mainstream, I watch the Marvel and the DC, I watch the weird horror movies, I watch the indie I'm movies. I'm thrilled to hear that. I'm thrilled to hear so, that. So I love that. Mm-hmm. That's just that's a pleasure, mm-hmm. you know, for me. But uh, but since I had kids and since I'm working that much, I I I, I discover less new music than I used to, you know. So it's so it's like uh, it's it's harder to keep yeah. up to date mm-hmm. about everything. So you kind of choose your battles yeah. where, where you are cutting edge, and it just happens, you know. It just happens. I feel like. Well, when I when you have kids, you can still live the life you used to live. You still do the stuff you love, but the still the stuff you kind of like, mm-hmm. you won't do anymore. You know? <laughs> that, that's the thing. Yeah, uh, you 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 have pro- different priorities. Right. Yeah. And um, so I don't go to mm, any concerts anymore. Okay. I used to. Mm-hmm. You know. So you cut back on some stuff. I wish. I hope it comes back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I hope I'll be as hungry for cutting edge new music that I that I was when I was just. 10 years younger, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, but movies, definitely. I, I, I love movies and I, I, I watch so much of it and I watch a lot of television series as well, mm-hmm. but that are hyped, but <laughs> doesn't give me as much as a good film. Sorry. No, I'm, w- I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm right there with you hundred percent. And whenever I see a show that's hyped about and I go to like, check it out, I'm like, why does everything have to be a show? Why can't it be a movie? <laughs> <laughs> because they're so long. People that just check it out and like, okay. Do I have 10 hours <laughs> to put into this? <laughs> well, I will send it out on uh, We Are Team Movies. And uh, Eskilfolk, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Because I loved this conversation with you. And I love oh, your It was work. great. It was great, Jordan. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for the nice words about my movie and my movies. And uh, no, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And go check out The Innocence, everyone. It will grate down... Uh, to your very last nerve. And that is the best possible thing I could hope to say about it. Thank you. Now it was a real pleasure. One more really big thanks to Eskil Vogt. I am, I mean, aside from the, the reasons he's obviously on this uh, podcast right now, I am such a fan of Thelma that I am starstruck having spoken to the co-writer of that film the innocence is showing in select theaters but if it's not showing near you or you aren't going to theaters you can rent it on almost any platform you choose and again it actually does if you listen to the hannah bergholm episode talking about her film hatching this really is a great back-to-back of a uh, coming of age very artful understated uh horror uh, at times, body horror. So check out the innocence and hatching. I, I think this is this this is a programmed nicely programmed double for you. And also, just so you know, the Breakfast Club is also currently on Hulu, and both parts of the Souvenir are available on Canopy. So you have a lot of watching homework to do, but it's going to be the good kind of homework that you wanted. It's the reading you wanted to do over the summer, okay? Um, but as I said, as I always say, I've got one quick thing to touch on before I go, and that is. The movie Men. Um, this is a real bang-up job year that, I mean, obviously, A24 is very successful. But uh, they're really it's really working for me personally, what we're getting from them this year with X and the upcoming movie Bodies, Bodies, Bodies coming this summer, which I have seen and I did love. And now we get, now we get Men. And Excellent trailer. Definitely one of the best trailers I've seen in a very long time. And the thing I love most about the movie Men is that, A, it does a really excellent 
job, in my estimation, at presenting the horror of a woman being surveilled. And I there have been a few films in the past couple of years that I think have done a really good job handling that very specific, terrifying aspect of the female experience. And and honestly, the the non-cisgender, gender queer experience too, when you when you are apart from the majority or you are apart from the sort of hegemonic dominating force, you're you're noticed in a crowd. And being noticed means being watched, perhaps being tracked, perhaps being um, menaced by people. I, and I think uh, this movie, the movie Alone from, gosh, either last year or the year before, an excellent just stripped down survival horror film. The movie Run, uh, I think, accomplishes a similar objective. Run, Alone, and this one, Men. What a trio of titles. Uh, all three do a really good job of presenting that feeling that I I think most women understand, uh, which is just existing in the world and being an object of scrutiny for no other reason than you're present. And so it does that really well. And then another thing that I really like about men is if you watched Annihilation, which is also from writer-director Alex Garland, who I love, if you watched Annihilation, that's some hard sci-fi. And that movie decides at a certain point that it doesn't give a shit if you are like on board for the entire journey at a certain point uh you know we enter a new phase of the film and it's like let's explore like ruminations on depression and dissociation and you have natalie portman dancing with like a liquid metal double of herself uh and it's like wow we've entered theory haven't we and i'll say guys men does it does this it has the same spirit at a certain point it's like and now we're gonna hit the dense portion of this where it is extremely open to interpretation and there's gonna be some wild body horror um that comes along uh for you to just be like "Mm, let me roll that over in my brain a little bit for a very long time and incorporate any text i may have read about like feminist thought uh, you can just be sort of in awe of the spectacle of of how this movie escalates. That is certainly an option on the table for you. But also, if you really want to dig down in under the skin of the movie and wonder, you know, all caps, what it all means, there's a real feast for you there. And I appreciate that uh, Alex Garland does not seem to be uh, afraid of alienating people. Um, Because when you make things like sci-fi and horror, I want you to take really big swings. And I want you to, you know, not maybe necessarily be concerned about the commercial prospects of something and be more concerned with the sort of, uh, you know, how can my art be as bold and weird as possible? So that's really nice. Um, I love that about men. Your mileage may vary on it. It's going to be a lot for people, for for a mainstream audience. But go check it out. Because it's incredible performances and it's also a beautiful looking film because that's what Alex Garland always gives you. And now, that's our show. We did it. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod or send us an email at FeelingScene at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Crew on Twitter. Our theme music is by Andrew Ethan. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.